I'm glad you are here with us again once, uh, if you're joining us online or just now jumping in, or maybe you're listening or watching this uh, later um, in the week, we are wrapping up a series today. And something that we've been saying for the last three weeks is that you, your household, we all have some money issues, okay? We all do. We have money issues. Um, the truth is, our culture has money issues. And so what we've said, and we've kind of laid out this argument over the last few weeks, is that in our culture, the financial odds are stacked against you, all right? And we've tried to make that point, right? I, I saw this statistic um, a couple weeks ago that said at the midpoint in the pandemic, all right? So this would, this would have been like early this year, early 2021, there was a poll that was done, and 80% of the Americans in that poll said that they did not have enough cash to cover a surprise $500 expense. Now, that sounds, 80% said they did not have $500 in cash to cover an expense should it pop up. $500. 80% people said that. See, the odds are stacked against us. Now, that may not be all of our stories, but it's some of our stories. The odds are stacked against you when it comes to the amount of debt that your family has. And we feel that. And many of us know that. The odds are stacked against us that when it comes to arguments in your, in your marriage, by and large, it's going to be about finances. Most divorces, statistically speaking, will end. And finances will be a result of the mo most of marriages that will end. Finances. The odds are stacked against us. Most households, most American households have no budget or plan for how you spend your money monthly. Most Americans, the odds are that you have no budget or plan for how you want to spend your money. Finances are at the top of our list for um, the biggest cause of worry, anxiety, and stress in your life. So this has, been, this has been, this is the truth. And so what we've done in this series is this. And, and if you have, if you're joining us now, if you're a guest with us, super glad you're here. You can go on our website. You can go on our website if you're listening in now, but haven't caught the ones before. And you can listen to the rest of these messages, all right? Because our money was intended by God and is intended by God for you and I to enjoy it, all right? First, first it was, it's intended for us to enjoy. Secondly, God gives us resources so that we can use those resources to put them as a priority, to fuel priorities of the things he cares about most. So number one, you're supposed to enjoy your money. Okay, God's good. He wants to give good gifts to us. Number two, he wants us to use those things to fuel the things that he cares about most. The problem is our approach to money, generally speaking, leaves us wanting. That the truth is that most Americans, and I don't know if it, this, this, you know, the people listening in or the cross-section of this room represents most Americans. I don't know. All right, But most of us aren't winning with money. I think most of us would agree that something, we would love something to change about how we see finances. So in order to beat the odds that are stacked against us in our culture, we have to do something different. We have to treat money differently. We have to approach money differently. We need to adopt a new approach. Because I believe that we have a God who wants us to experience, Jesus said it himself, okay, that he came to give us life to the most abundant, to the fullest version, both this side of heaven and, of course, in eternity. 
And if we want that full life, then we need not just a, a human approach to how we handle our finances, but we need a total transformation. Most of us have been culturally formed when it comes to our approach to finances, but we need God to spiritually form us when it comes to our finances. So in our approach to money, we need to see it as a spiritual practice. And so this is what we're gonna lean into today. Our approach to money, we need to see as a spiritual practice. So here's our big idea. Your money practices are spiritual practices. Your money practices are spiritual practices. Now, if you ever notice, um, you know, when it, this happens a lot with, my, with, with children, but it happens with us too. I remember the first time I walked into a gym and I thought in my freshman year in college, I'm just going to start working out because it's it a hard year for me. So I remember walking in and you're in the gym for like three weeks, you know, four weeks, and you're looking at all these other guys around you and you're like, man, like I've been in here for four weeks. Like that's a long time, right? And, and, and like, and I don't look anything like these guys at all, right? And they're, they're just like throwing weights around, you know? And I, and, I, and I get, you know, discouraged. And so my kids are out in the backyard, right, when they're younger, and we're throwing a baseball around or shooting some basketball, and, and they're not good at it, right, because you're not going to start out being great at it. And if, and if you have kids or been around kids, it takes about 10 minutes of them trying anything new, and they're like, I stink at this, you know, like, I just stink. And like, you've, you've been out here 10 minutes throwing that baseball or, or putting that bat in your hand. What do you expect? It takes practice, but you and I will approach money. We kind of step into money whenever you, if you, when you turn 16, you get a job, whatever. And from there on out, we step into money and somehow we think we're just going to be good at it. We're just going to, we just earn it. We start getting a paycheck and we're like, well, this is cool. This is pretty easy. We're just going to earn it and we're going to spend it and we might save it. We might be able to, we might decide to be generous with it. But we just think when it comes to finances that we're just going to be good at it. And we, so we just kind of propel ourselves into it. But what if money were something that you had to practice? And what if money, according to our Heavenly Father, was a spiritual practice? Paul, who, who was the first century's greatest church planter. He planted churches all over the Mediterranean world. He hung out with and learned from the guys who knew Jesus personally, who walked with him. Paul had an encounter with Jesus after Jesus had resurrected. And so Paul is lit on fire for Jesus. And he's going to write a letter to the Christians in the city of Rome. And I want you to turn with me there. If you brought your Bibles, open it up to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We have some at the hub right out here. We want you to have one. It's yours. They're free. Um, we just want you to have God's word in your hands. But we're going to kind of camp out in Romans chapter 12 today. Here's what Paul says to the Christians living in that city. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So I was told in college once by a professor, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you ever heard this? Um, you should always ask, what's the therefore, therefore, all right? So it's simple. So, so whenever you come across therefore now, because something really important was said before it, 
okay? And therefore, something super important is coming after. So because of what I've just said, therefore, pay careful attention to what I'm getting ready to say. That's the point. So in Romans chapter 1 through 11, Paul is laying out an argument for God's goodness, Okay, he spent 11 chapters talking about God's mercy and God's compassion and God's love to the human race, even though we have struggled to submit to him and to love him back. God is good, he's forgiving, and he's for us. And so then chapter 12, Paul makes a turn. He says, therefore, in view of that, verse two, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. So he says, for those who have accepted Jesus as a substitute for our sins, now not everybody here, not everybody listening online today has said, I've given my life over to Jesus as my savior and he died on the cross to take away my sins. Like I get that, not everybody's there. I am and I believe that that is the way to full and lasting life. Okay, but what Paul says, for those of you who have, God has begun a transformative work in you, right? He's started a transformation in you. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, a transformative work started in your life, all right? Your sin, the penalty for your sin has been canceled, all right? God doesn't call you an enemy anymore. He doesn't call you a slave anymore. He calls you a son and a daughter. And in that sonship, as now a child of God, his spirit, his Holy Spirit, is doing a transformative work, constantly forming you to be more like Jesus, constantly forming your life to look more like Jesus. So Paul says, because of that, literally the phrase is, do not be conformed. All right, so first he goes to the negative. Because of God's mercy and the transformative work he's doing you, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not copy the behavior of your culture. All right, or better, what it actually says in, in the original Greek language is, don't let the culture around you copy its behavior onto you. That's kind of an interesting little twist, isn't it? Don't let culture copy its behavior onto you. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how are we doing with that? When it comes to our finances, how has our culture shaped the way that you approach your money? It's a fair question. So we live in a culture that's all about output, right? We just kind of really focus on output. So output matters. Whatever I do with my money, that's kind of, that's what I can see, that's what you can see, and that's, that's what matters. So whatever I give matters. And so if you're a generous person or maybe you're following Jesus and you've been giving money to, to, to God's work or to the church, you say, really what I give away is what matters. Output matters, output matters. Well, statistically speaking, the odds are that the average American household only gave away 2.5% of its income, of your income, last year. That's a pretty small percentage, all right? But we say, well, I gave 10% of my income away. What if, what if you were like a 10%er, right? In 2020, I gave away 10%. Or I gave away 30% this year. Or I gave $100 to that organization last year. And we think output matters. That's how we measure it. And that feels pretty good. But those numbers are pretty relative, aren't they? 
I mean, I, I don't know your financial situation. You don't know mine. I mean, just kind of just you and God know that, right? So maybe you gave away 10%, but maybe you could have given away 40. Maybe you gave $100, but maybe you could have given 1,000. And so we don't usually think like that. We just kind of think about output. What I did do feels good, and, and, and it's finished. As long as we feel good about output, what else does it matter? right? As long as we feel good about what my money has done, we feel pretty good about it. Output. What my money can buy, the way that I dress, the things that I have, the things that I can see, like our culture measures us largely by the things that we have, the way that you dress, the bigger mud flaps on your, the, on your truck, right? The that, and that's something for Ross. I don't know if you're listening online, <laughs> but I've lived here long enough. I've lived here 10 years. If you're listening online, you could be anywhere in the world, but mud flaps matter, okay? And so that's the thing. But it's also like, what's the name on your boots, right? What's the name on your purse, okay? I've lived here 10 years, and I have not owned a purse yet. But the point is, it matters. It matters. Culture shapes your approach to finances. It shapes mine every day. But what if instead of culture copying its behavior onto you and me, something else did? Instead of looking at our bank statements or what statements our money can make to other people, what if you and I instead focused on our practices? That would be transformative for you. Your money practices are spiritual practices. So he says, don't be conformed to the world. And he says this, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Instead, he says, don't let the culture copy its behavior onto you. Instead, you be transformed by renewing your mind. Literally, what he he says there is, keep on being transformed. Remember, because he's talking to people who have accepted Jesus as Savior. So Paul's letter is to Christians, okay? And he's saying, keep on being transformed. He said, remember, when you put your faith in Jesus, the process of transformation began. So he says, keep pressing into that work by being transformed. It's a total change. The Greek word is where we get our word for metamorphosis. It's a total change from one thing to another thing. So wherever you are on your spiritual journeys right now, wherever you are, okay? And, and for any of us, it, it could, it's anywhere on the spectrum of I don't believe to I maybe believe to I do believe to I've been following Jesus for a long time, Some, right? You're never done being transformed. You have not arrived. I've not arrived. God still wants to do a work in me. He's still doing a work in you. And he's still doing that in how you and I approach our finances. See, and according to Paul, the key to this new approach is, he says, be transformed by renewing your mind. So in in Greek, the the thought was between the heart and the mind, these were the, the centers of one's attitudes. This was the control center of your feelings, of your attitudes, of your actions, of your behaviors, Your thought life produced things from 
your life. And so by renewing your mind, you made a powerful change in your life, right? And you've, and you've seen that. You've seen that in other things you've, you're already doing. One's mind keeps being renewed when in Christ. Keeps being renewed by the spiritual input. So how is your mind being continually transformed by God? Well, what you put in, the input, matters actually a lot more than the output. So how are you feeding? Are you in God's word? Are you reading? Are you praying? Are, are you gathering like in, in, in a faith community? Are you getting to know God and what he wants for your life? What are the inputs? What are you putting into your mind? What are you putting into your heart? We, our culture will measure on output only, and we can get to that, and Jesus cares a lot about output, but what he cares most about is input. What are you putting into your mind that you're giving God then the opportunity to transform you? So you have to trust God to transform your mind by spiritual practices if I tell you that prayer is a spiritual practice, would anybody argue that? Probably not. No, no, prayer is a spiritual practice, yeah. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. If I told you that serving others was a spiritual practice, would anybody argue that? No, I mean, it, that serving others is what Jesus told us to do, so it's a spiritual practice. And the more you do it, the more you fall in love with it, and the better you become at it. What if I told you that managing your money towards the thing that God cares most about, if you managed your money and, and gave it to fuel the things that God cares most about, what if I told you that was a spiritual practice? Would you say no? Yes? Have any of us ever arrived at the place, at, at the final destination of generosity and giving? So you have to trust God to transform your mind and your heart through spiritual practices. You had to practice. You didn't step out into the backyard with a baseball bat and knock grand slams out of the neighborhood the first time you picked up the bat. Why do you expect the same to be true about how you handle your finances? We're just going to be good at it. It takes practice, and it takes a transformation. So look what he says in Romans 12, chapter 2. He keeps going. He says, So then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the question for the ages is, how do you know what God's will is? Anybody ever asked that question? How do I know what God's will is? I, 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 I might be switching jobs. I might quit the team or try out for it. Um, should, we, should we try to have, start a family? Should we, should we have a baby? Should I get married? And we always want to know, oftentimes Christian people want to know, well, what's God's will? We always want to know, what does God want? What does God desire? Well, look, in Mark chapter 12, Mark records the, this, this interaction that Jesus had with his disciples, and I want to share it with you. So go with me to Mark chapter 12 here. 
I want you to see something that Jesus is making. Jesus makes a, a point to his disciples really about this thing. Okay, Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting in their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. See, what was being input into that woman's heart and her mind was transforming her, wasn't it? Her devotion to the things that God cares most about was transforming her. And it led to something that Jesus marveled at. And I tell you what, once in a while in scripture, you will read of a case where Jesus marvels at someone's actions, their heart right? Where he's like astonished or he's surprised. And I would long for a day for me that I would, I would lean into God's transformative work in my life so fully that one day Jesus could look at my life and say, dude, like that was astonishing, like that the son of God would marvel at, at something that he's seen done in me. So you got a job, right? Maybe you, maybe you have a job, maybe you got a new job, maybe you got a raise. And by being transformed for me to care about the things that God cares about most, I start looking at that little bit of income boost and I start thinking, how can I praise God? How can I just worship God by giving a portion of that back to him? See, this is, just, this, this is how we just start thinking differently about our money. This is how we start thinking differently about our money. You got an unexpected gift maybe over the holidays or maybe you will here in a few weeks. And our first thought would be like, how can I bless someone else the way I was just blessed? Or maybe you get a bonus, right? Christmas bonus at work. Sometimes you do, some of us do. And you say, well, how can I use some of that to serve somebody else? Like, do you see how it just changes? Like, allowing God to transform the way that we view it changes the way we view money all the time. But it takes practice, like, you're not going to get there tomorrow, but you can get there. But we see our financial resources as tools to bless other people and to connect them to Jesus. That takes transformation of your mind, the input that affects output. I would ask you, this season to ask God, transform me. It's kind of a dangerous prayer. Would you, Father in heaven, transform me by renewing my mind? Help me to lean into the practices, Father, 
that would lead me to care more about the things that you care about most. God, direct my finances as a practice to getting there. And you be obedient to that. And you just kind of press into it. And you keep pressing into it. And I promise you, you will see transformation. Your money practices are spiritual practices. Our culture would never see it that way. So this, you're going to be weird on this one, okay? You're going to be really weird on this one. Your money practices are spiritual practices. I want to share something with you here. Um, I want to share a practice with you because it's something I debated when I was a kid, for, and even a young adult, because I think I've told you that as a young adult, like I didn't really give money away. I, I, I saved it. I saved it and I spent it. Saved and spent, saved and spent. When, when my wife and I got married, I had like a pretty, for like a 23-year-old guy, like I had a pretty decent savings account. And my wife's like, what in the world have you been doing? Like I just hoarded it all. And I said to myself, um, but I was able to pay off like college debt by the time I was like 26. You know what I mean? Like, so, so I, I, like, I hoarded. I, I did. And, and I said to myself, I, I'm really not going to give back to what God's doing. Like I, I didn't give to the church very often, you know, maybe like at holidays or something. Because I had this mindset, right, that like as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever, 21-year-old, that, you know, when I get into a full-time job and I get established and start getting a regular paycheck, then I can start being generous, right? Um, so I, I, I didn't, no one ever sat and told me that, that generosity was a practice, <laughs> clearly, all right? Because I wasn't practicing it. I wasn't even in the game, all right? So, so I, that was wrong. Like, I was wrong. And I'm glad that God has led me and transformed me since then. But, but here's a practice that was always talked about when I was a kid, and I never really understood how to wrestle with it. And so I actually want to teach it to you now so that you can't say, as I had once, that I didn't know no one said. So, so humor me. When God led his people, we just sang a song about lead... Um, Egypt, like take me out of Egypt. And if you're not, if you don't know that story, God led the Hebrew people out of 400 years of slavery in the nation of Egypt. He led them out and promised them a new homeland. And when God established that relationship with the Hebrew people, he established a covenant relationship. And you know what a covenant is? God says, I will be your God. I will care for you. You will be my people if you will put your trust in me. If you'll put your trust in me, I will be your God forever. There was this covenant relationship established. And in that, God gives them commands and, and practices to follow in regards to worship, in regards to how the covenant relationship between God and mankind would work. Okay, you tracking with me so far? Right? He, he establishes covenant with them. Right? In Leviticus, in the Old Testament, the book of Le Leviticus, God introduced to his people a way to, to use their money as an act of worship. So this is an old, old conversation that you and I still don't like, right? It's an old conversation. And he introduced the tithe to his people. A tithe is literally just 10% of God's provision that he's given to us, given back to him. 10% of any income, anything we receive, we give back to him, all right? Now, in the Old Testament, this is the Jewish law before Jesus was born, all right? The tithe did two things. 
okay? That 10% that all of the people were required to bring back to the priest into the temple, all right, to the tabernacle, all right? It contributed, one, it contributed to the ministry for the people. So it met needs for people, physical needs, food needs, whatever the needs were. It contributed to meeting needs of people in the community. Number two, it recognized that God was the provider of everything, okay? He owned it all. And in giving a 10% portion back to him, God's people learned that he was provider and that they trusted him to continue to provide. So it was for ministry to people and it was to honor God who provided it. Okay, are you tracking? That's what the tithe did. Everybody came and gave that 10%. 10% of their crops, 10% of their herds, 10% of their income, 10% of everything was given back to the priest to manage for the ministry. Okay, you with me? Now look into the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, again, this is in the Old Testament of Scripture, chapter 12. This is what Moses has been saying, okay? He says, bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give and your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herds and flocks, there in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice. So the teenagers and the children were all brought in in the giving of their stuff. All right, and then this is what God says, like right there, your families are gonna have a feast. You're gonna rejoice in everything you have put your hand to. He said, I want you to enjoy your money. You're actually going to enjoy the fruits of your labor as an act of worship. You're gonna give 10% of it back. You're going to enjoy that other 80, 90%, whatever it is you've decided you're just gonna use on you. Right? And, we're, and this is all going to be an act of worship because the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, where I struggled as a teenager and as a young adult was, I don't see this copied over into the New Testament at all. Okay? I don't see this copied over, this practice over. So what did New Testament Christians do? How did New Testament Christians, us, when Jesus came on the scene and the church was established, how did they... How did they manage their money when it came to generosity? Well, I've got two answers for you. One is Jesus was Jewish, all right? He first taught to Jewish people. So the first Christians were by and large, and still Paul, until Paul started going into the Greek and Roman cities in the Mediterranean world, the first Christians were, guess what? Jewish, right? So Jesus assumed several spiritual practices of the Jewish people. In fact, he'll say like in Matthew chapter six, Jesus will throw out phrases like, when you pray, when you fast, when you give. So Jesus assumed of his audience who was steeped in Jewish heritage that there were certain spiritual practices that they were already doing and should continue. Not if you pray, when you pray. Not if you give, when you give. Okay, you with me? So Jesus made these assumptions. Now, not all of those did he bring into the New Testament. Some of the Old Testament rules and regulations Jesus fulfilled and canceled. Eating rituals, purification practices. What types of people were acceptable to God? This was a new age. 
God revealed himself to the whole world. His love and his compassion and his grace was revealed to all people. And so some of these Old Testament practices, rules, Jesus accomplished and finished. But when it came to the 10% tithe, Jesus didn't finish that one. He continued to assume that it was a practice of all people who were called by God. And so those first members of the church, it was already an expectation that they were bringing their tithes and their offerings and placing them before God. But the New Testament church stepped up above and beyond that. What we see in the book of Acts is the Christians are selling properties, they're selling houses, they're selling all kinds of stuff, bringing it to the, to the, to the apostles' feet, the church leaders. They're putting it at their feet and to fuel the ministry and their community and to say to God, we believe that you provide everything we have and we want to tell you that we trust you. So, so here's the second answer to that, what, ha- what, what happened to giving in the New Testament that God doesn't measure amounts. Breathe a sigh of relief right there, all right? God doesn't measure amounts. He doesn't measure outputs void of inputs. Jesus called his followers to surrender 100% of themselves to God. He wants your heart. Your heavenly father wants your heart. And once he has that and starts transforming that, Generosity will follow. Generosity is a practice. You have to practice it. And sometimes you have to behave before you believe. Sometimes you have to start practicing something before you actually believe that it's doing a transforming work in you. Have you ever done that? Where you've just kind of just gone through some motions of things before it actually sunk into your heart? It's okay. It's okay. Be generous, even if you don't think you should be. So just practice. Behave before you actually believe. That's okay. God God will use that. Sometimes I believe before I actually behave. I give my life to Jesus. I say he's Lord. And you know what? There's a lot of crap in my life that I haven't surrendered over him to change. Sometimes I believe before my heart and my actions actually match. God's doing a work on that too. Test and see what God's good, perfect will is for your financial life. How you treat your money. And you will see a change in your life. We have something coming up in January that I encourage you to write this down. Go to our website, thewocc dot com slash FPU, okay, FPU. In January, we're going to be doing a Financial Peace University course. Dave Ramsey has been helping people for years and years get out of debt and transform the way they practice finances and the way you budget. And in January, we're going to start hosting some classes on that. And if you want information about that, go to thewocc.com slash FPU. And what you're doing is you're just saying, I'd like to hear information. And you'll start receiving some information about when that course starts. Denise and I, my wife and I did it several years ago. It was life-changing for us. Um, and I highly encourage you to look at that too. But your money practices are spiritual practices. There's no question. How you treat your money is something that God wants to use to form you to look like Jesus. 
And as we wrap up this series today, this week, I want to ask you to consider stepping in before you believe, or even as you're believing, to step into giving. Maybe you're a first-time giver. I encourage you to do that. Maybe you've never given to things God's fueling before, and this would be the first time. I would say start practicing now. I don't care if you're 16. I don't care if you're 80. Start practicing now, giving to the things that God cares most about. Maybe you, need to, maybe you need to take a step from there, and you're just like, I've given before, so, so maybe you need to go to where you're a regular giver. Well, you step into a practice that's now forming a habit. Do you understand that? So there is a practice, and then there's a habit of practicing. And maybe you need to take a step to where you're, you're practicing a habit, where you're regularly giving. Maybe you need to go, maybe you could go beyond that. You say, I kind of do, I've been doing that for a while now. I've been giving regularly. Maybe you need to step into a proportional place where that would be like that tie that like you choose you choose a percent you choose a money a number and you say god i know you don't really care about outputs void of inputs but i want you to do something in here and in here and i i need to step up i feel led to step up and maybe maybe you can step up to a place where you're a surrendered giver where you're just falling more and more in love with the things that God's doing in your heart. And as you see a change in your life and all kinds of different places, you're going to surrender more and more to fuel the ministry that God's doing. Here's what I share with you as we close out this series. I'm so thankful that Jesus is not a tiered giver. <laughs> he doesn't love you in increments based on how much you give or how much you serve or how much what your actions are or how good you are, he loves you fully and completely and unconditionally. He doesn't love you in phases. He trusted God 100%. He gave it all for you. This, I mean, this is the point. Jesus didn't hold back for you. He didn't leave something in the hopper, just say, well, well, maybe Nathan's got a little bit more in him, so I'm just going to, you know, when, when he gets there, then I'll, but nope. He gave it all. He spent 100% of himself. 100%, he gave it all. He spent his whole life for you. He emptied himself in obedience to God so that you could live in eternity with him. I'm telling you that because I believe it's true. And when you choose faith in Jesus, we will beat the odds stacked against us in our culture, not just financially, but relationally, in every way. When we put our faith in him, we start a journey to full life in Jesus. And I, White Oak, those of you who are listening online right now or later this week, I want to invite you to step into that journey, a full life in Jesus, one step of obedience at a time. Pray with me. God, I love you. You're good. Thank you for not loving me in pieces or in increments. You gave it all so that I could have it all. And as your son, Father, I worship you. And I am grateful. Amen.